Hi, I'm Tim Rood, Head of Industry Relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest episode of On the Hill. Today, I have the distinct pleasure to speak with my old friend and former business partner, Brian Montgomery. While Brian really needs no introduction, I'm gonna give him one anyway, just to embarrass him. Most recently, Brian was the Deputy Secretary of HUD. He's been the uh, FHA Commissioner two times. He co-founded and was the Vice Chairman of the Collingwood Group. Deputy Assistant to President George W. Bush and Head of Advance. He oversaw Cabinet Affairs for George W. Bush. And interestingly, he headed the White House Working Group to investigate the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here, Tim. Thanks for having me. So, Brian, you've worked for four U.S. presidents. You've held positions of tremendous responsibility and influence. Gotta ask, what's the worst job you've ever had? Well, I would say in one of my summers during college, buddy of mine and I were hired to be what are called time checkers. We were working at an oil refinery outside of Houston that was under construction. And our job was to twice a day, make sure everyone who had clocked in in the morning was actually on the job site, meaning to make sure that their best friend hadn't clocked them in. And so we had to account for 400 or so pipe fitters, masonry, welders, electricians in the middle of the Houston summer walking through a oil refinery under construction. You learned a lot about people in that job, but it was uh, not, not the best physical and environmental location, to be brutally honest, but it paid well. So they love uh, snout-nosed Brian Montgomery smelling their breath and checking their time cards. I like the way you worked in that one because there was definitely some uh, <laughs> people were sneaking some stuff in on their lunch kits. All right. For grins, what's the best job then? Well, you, you articulated one of them, and that was uh, serving in the Bush White House for four and a half years. And I did the same for his dad for almost three years. And uh, it doesn't matter if you're what party you're a part of. It's a wonderful honor to be asked to do that and to serve the American people at a very high level. And I'd say and another one was during college when I was at the University of Texas, a lot of us worked at sorority houses as waiters. I enjoyed that job so much because the young ladies that were in that sorority that I worked at were almost like sisters to me. I worked there for two years and I learned more about dealing, and I don't mean in a, in a negative way, I mean, quite, quite the opposite, a positive way, with women. They taught me so much. I think they learned stuff from me Again, it was almost like uh, like brothers and sisters. I didn't know it at the time, but later in life, that was uh, a job I look back as just something that taught me so much about life and interacting with people. I learned a lot in both jobs, trust me. Well, this is a family podcast, Brian, so thanks for not telling a, a salacious tale of a college escapades. So uh, very G-rated. <laughs> All right, well, let's pivot. So, you know, there's really hasn't been a point in time, at least not in my lifetime, when the topics of DC, you know, namely politics, policy making, regulations have been more popular and interesting to more people. So our listeners are trying to get a handle on what is likely to come out of DC. Uh, obviously, you have a change of administration. It's a fluid environment. They want to figure out how it might impact their businesses, what they can do about it and how, and how we can help them set proper expectations. This is really about the myths, misconceptions, and facts about how DC works. So that said, today there's an unprecedented confluence of crises in America. You've got a health crisis, an unemployment crisis, 
percolating financial crisis, political crisis, and on top, a social justice crisis. So President Biden has responded with an unprecedented number of executive orders, 32 in just his first couple of weeks in office. He and his team are now going through the long and painful process of sourcing and vetting a little over 4,000 political appointees. Now, historically, effective transitions are highly correlated to successful presidents, and the opposite is also true. So my question to you, Brian, is what's likely going on with the Biden transition team now? So look, I'll just borrow the old adage right now that I suspect they're drinking from an open fire hydrant. They're dealing with finding the right personnel. They're conducting policy reviews, legislation, legal issues, if it's at a cabinet agency, what litigation is pending. Now, folks should understand there was a change in the Transition Act that dates back many, many years. In 2010, it used to be that following a presidential election, the winner would immediately get access to GSA office space and some GSA that's General Services Administration, back office support. Well, in 2010, Congress, in a show of bipartisanship, changed that process to where it would now begin following the, each party's convention, which is typically near the end of August. So that extra two months or so certainly mattered. I mean, think about it. You're changing over potentially control of a three-and-a-half, $4 trillion entity waiting until the election to begin is, you know, 70, 75 days till the inauguration, adding another 60, 65 days to that can certainly make a difference. And in that time period, they can start looking for people to fill the several thousand vacancies. They can start vetting them. They can start doing background checks for the ones that require that. So that extra head start uh, certainly helps. But getting back to just, you know, and by the way, a lot of those it require extensive background checks, uh, whether you're at HUD or Department of Labor, Department of Defense, especially for what are called the PAS slots, presidential appointment, Senate confirmed. They then have to get the FBI background check and get a hearing scheduled before a, a Senate committee since the Senate handles all the confirmations. And then following the hearing, the confirmation hearing, there has to be a committee vote. And then you got to schedule floor time. So it can take five, six, seven months to get confirmed or, or longer. But as you mentioned, Tim, there's also policy concerns. They're looking at things that were done by the previous administration. They're looking at rules that weren't quite done. And some they want to keep, maybe others they don't. But one other thing that I think is sometimes overlooked, the policy jobs are important, but the back office, if you will, of an agency, a cabinet agency or independent agency, is just as important. And I pull back the curtain for that on like the Assistant Secretary for Administration, the CIO, the CFO. In our case, our CFO turned around HUD's finances in a matter of three years to the best shape they'd been in in decades, with no material weaknesses, no significant deficiencies, all unqualified opinions. So this gentleman spent almost 40 years at a big four accounting agency he said uh, HUD's finances were in such bad shape, he wouldn't have taken them as a client. But through his expertise and his former colleagues who had also retired from uh, this large accounting firm and the great career staff there, they were able to make a, almost a miraculous turnaround 
of HUD's uh, finances in just a few short years. And I just use that as, as one example. So anyway, I can guarantee there's some very long hours right now at the cabinet agencies and certainly at the White House. I guess as the industry is kind of waiting with bated breath for what's to happen next, either as a deputy secretary or FHA commissioner, what are you looking at first? I mean, is it high level policies? Is it operations? Is it people? I mean, what do you think they're going through in the first 90 days, say, at HUD? I will put people at the top of that pyramid. Certainly, they, they're on their path to get a confirmed HUD secretary. I mean, soon you'll see a, a deputy secretary nominee. Uh, then you'll start seeing nominees for assistant secretary for housing and FHA commissioner, Jenny May president, uh, public Indian housing. Uh, but again, that process, even with one party rule, so to speak, albeit by a thin margin, can take many months. In my case, from nomination to uh, a floor vote took almost seven months. They're also dealing with a pandemic as the Trump administration did. I think they're also learning that governing is far more difficult than campaigning. I think now they're able to see actually the hard work that went into some of the decisions that we made. And I hope they can appreciate why those decisions were made. So Again, they're they're juggling a lot of different things right now, no different than any new administration. Yeah, I'm sure it's not going to let up for quite a bit. Let me put on a little bit of a wider lens. By nearly every measure, the industry of politics is really thriving, right? You've got endless campaigns that employ an immense number of canvassers, pollsters, staff, consultants, PR activities, and spending of those campaigns is at nosebleed levels. However, the policymaking in DC, as distinguished from the politics, is really struggling because of two main issues in my eyes. The first is political. One could argue, a cynic, count me in that category, that political parties have an incentive to not solve problems. Essentially, keeping a problem or controversy alive and gnawing at citizens is a way to attract and motivate partisan voters, special interest, and well-heeled donors. Now, the second issue I think it's more procedural. So you got the political issue, now you're looking at the procedural stuff. While DC may appear on the surface to be governed by defined agencies with specific regulatory power, but in fact, it's a matrix organization on steroids, right? And the process is rarely intuitive, you know, even to the insiders, much less the outsiders. What do you think people need to better understand and appreciate about policymaking in DC generally? You can use HUD as a proxy for that. You know, the different agencies, NEC, OMB, The Hill, NGOs. And I know it's not static. I mean, different groups are more influential at different points in time. But what do you think folks need to better understand? Well, I would say, uh, first, I agree that it seems like campaigns never end. Speaking for the voters and the general public, uh, I think we all miss the day when a campaign would end when everybody could get on with the business of governing. And I would just say in, in the cynic side, uh, if everything worked perfectly, there wouldn't be any lobbying groups on either side. You know, a lot of young kids start their careers off and whether they were inspired by a TV show or movie, decide they want to come to Washington, D.C. and change the world. They soon figure out that the policy process can move rather slow and ordinarily does move rather slowly. I would say sometimes it can move at light speed. Look at the CARES Act, how quickly Congress got together and, and passed that. If you're just looking to move the needle on, on whatever policy, policy X, policy Y, you've got a lot of moving parts. 
Was it something that the candidate campaigned on? Is it something that they want to undo for the previous administration? You know, ordinarily the White House drives that process. You know, sort of the big policy issues. That's either, you know, the Domestic Policy Council, the National Economic Council, the National Security Council, or OMB, the Office of Management and Budget. They do more than just budget. They get involved in policy matters as well. And each White House seems to have their own power centers, whether that's because of a certain individual's personality, who's, you know, many times come back to a position or had a position in a previous Democrat or Republican administration and now, you know, comes back. And it can be almost shocking to some people, the amount of influence that office can wield just solely because of the personality of the person in the position. And then, as you mentioned, you have the outside players, you know, industry and nonprofits, all represented by advocacy groups, think tanks, NGOs, you name it. But I, I would say there's one thing in my service to four presidents that I, I wish both parties could do a better job at, and that is to avoid the knee-jerk reaction that everything the previous administration worked on must therefore be bad. Why? Because they worked on it. And I say that because, you know, it's a natural urge to say, we're going to unwind X, Y, and Z, and we're going to redo it this way. And I just think they feel like it's a campaign slogan. And I'm not just singling out the Biden administration here at all, because everybody's done it. And, and I just say, having been on the inside, do you want to just slow down for a second and take a look at the policy? You know, this isn't talking points. This isn't campaigning. These are the lives of American citizens, millions of them who are impacted one way or the other by this. And just because a Republican or a Democrat came up with it doesn't mean it's a bad idea. And it's probably been through a rigorous policy process and a budget process and maybe a rulemaking process. So I just asked, you know, would hope that in this case that they would pump the brakes a little, look at something, pull back the curtain and get a little more feel for the actual reality of what this policy is doing versus what they think it's doing based on because some group thinks it's it'll do X, Y, or, or Z. Now, I think the other, oh, and by the way, that process of rulemaking, as I mentioned, can be very slow. It can take 24, 36 months to get a rule through. So it's not something that happens quickly. But I guess the other sort of reality is HUD does not have an unlimited budget. I mean, a lot of their funds, they're all discretionary. And a lot of them are there to hand out based on some formula uh, or through a contract they have, with a, let's say, for example, a public housing agency or a developer of project-based rental assistance. Again, or a formula through cities, states, tribal nations. So there's very little left over at the end of that that you can move the needle on. So, you know, and, and, and if you need funding for something, ordinarily you have to probably take it from somewhere else, right? Although here again with semi one party rule, again, by a thin, a thin margin, maybe the legislation will be a, a better tool for, for them uh, to use in some circumstances, but even still some of that eventually requires rulemaking. So I guess the key takeaway here is take the time to learn what went into the process and be eyes wide open to the fact it could be a very long process. Agreed. I mean, what about, as an example, if you use HUD even for illustrative purposes, 
I mean, people who would be listening to this or thinking to themselves either, I got to get a meeting, sit down with these folks and tell them everything that they need to understand and you know, pitch whatever my agenda is. And then they come back to their office beaming with excitement that you really made a compelling case. So surely it's going to move and get some traction without any appreciation for all of the other influences, think OMB or NEC, that even if this using HUD as the example, the HUD secretary or FHA commissioner said, oh my God, light bulb, great idea, never thought about that, we're behind this 100%, and then they turn their office chair around and OMB gives them a, a stern you know, finger wag and a, and a head shake saying, no, no chance in heck that that thing's ever gonna make it through for these reasons. Are, are there things like that that people should better understand and set their expectations a little bit differently for how those kinds of things evolve? Absolutely. I mean, look, OMB's got the power of the purse strings and, um, you know, phones have to be apportioned by them. So they are involved in, in quite frankly, everything, everything that involves any budgeting or in, or involved in, in, in rulemaking, OIRA, which is a part of, um, you know, an adjunct to OMB. Now, they have their hands in every rulemaking. Now, sometimes if it's an extraordinary situation like the housing collapse of, you know, 12 years ago or so, now they can move pretty quick. They're not heartless in that respect. In fact, uh, you know, during the housing collapse, which, you know, FHA didn't have a role in, they had a huge role in the recovery. You know, we worked side by side with OMB, uh, getting out you know, a new product called FHA Secure to help refinance people who've been in a subprime loan. Probably should have gone FHA initially, but didn't. You know, we worked really close and worked very close with them on disaster recovery. Certainly, in, I can remember with Hurricane Katrina, uh, the long hours that we put in working with them. And But by its nature, there's always some friction. To your point, Tim, you think something's a great policy idea, but it's going to take X amount of dollars. And OMB will say, well, good, or where are you going to take it from? And you say, well, my budget's already small. I don't have any extra, you know, fat in my budget, if you will. And they could say, well, you're not going to be able to do whatever it is you wanted to. So there's definitely a push and a pull. There's no doubt. And that one puts it everything through what a, there's a financial test and a social test, right? Well, there's certainly, you know, a, a test within the construct of your budget. You know, every year we go through a great pain and effort. Uh, I say we, they now, to put together a proposed budget, which those who follow this process every year, it seems like whoever's controlling Congress will say, oh, that part, that budget's dead on arrival. And particularly for a new administration who comes in and inherits a budget from a previous administration. So, you know, again, it's, it's a lot of work sometimes. And you wonder, you know, I mean, again, putting a budget together is thousands and thousands of hours for what eventually comes of it. You know, we get one continuing resolution after another, and then they finally pass the budget, maybe, you know, halfway into the fiscal year. You know, the process doesn't work well in that respect, unfortunately. So the Biden team's got, a, obviously, a very ambitious agenda for the housing and housing finance markets, which is great because oftentimes it's a, it runs pretty flat or is a low-priority issue. So they're looking at expand home ownership to the disenfranchised and minority households. They want to re-engineer the tools for determining a borrower's willingness to repay, their capacity to repay to establish the true value of a property, you know, largely conceived to remove any real or perceived racial bias. President Biden's agenda is complicated by a fractured housing market that on 
you know, one hand has 3 million households that are in forbearance plans. And then on the other hand, has record high appreciation rates due to rocketing demand and record low inventories. From your perspective, do you have you know, any concerns about where housing, housing finance, or Biden and his team are heading on these issues? Well, absolutely. I would. Uh, I do want to just say one thing real quick about minority homeownership since you brought that up. You know, FHA has been on the vanguard of increasing the participation of minorities, and particularly first-time home buying minorities for decades. Uh, every year, clearly a third of FHA's endorsements go to minority households. Last year, FHA endorsed uh, $315 billion in endorsements. So, you know, think about the multiplier of that uh, for a minute. So, again, FHA excels in that uh, in that area. Well, I, look, I would say in terms of housing finance, in my view, that process only works as well based on how well the government and the private sector can work together. Whether it's Fannie or Freddie or FHA, at some point there are lenders and servicers and other stakeholders that are private corporations. And maybe some of them are publicly held. So meaning what the government does in that space doesn't happen in a vacuum. You have to work with the private sector to the degree that that's an antagonistic relationship. I don't think it's helpful to the process and generally not helpful to the home buying public. Look, it's easy to look back at the housing collapse, you know, in 2005, six and seven, we all know what happened then. There's no, no need to go back and laundry list everything that went wrong. But this go around, you know, this is not 12 years ago. This is a global pandemic. The home buying industry had nothing to do with the spread of this pandemic. And like the federal government, these entities had to convert to almost fully remote operations, literally overnight in some cases, and certainly over a matter of days. Of course, everybody had done, uh, you know, drills and, you know, we'd all kind of grown and they said, all right, take your laptop home this weekend and everybody work, sign on at the same time. And little did we know we'd actually have to do this at one point and in many cases do it, do it for months. So policies and procedures that they were doing that involves human contact, literally overnight had to be done another way, including call centers, being able to handle now everybody's phone call you know, as a result of, you know, forbearance and other things to the CARES Act. So I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying, given the enormity of what the situation was, it was no fault of any industry, what they were asked to do overnight and without losing a step was on a massive scale. And early on, of course, you know, we're all human. There were some fits and starts along the way, but I think by and large, it's in the best interest of these lenders and servicers to talk to their consumers. So I think by and large, that process has worked its way out. I know, speaking where at FHA, the amount of complaints had certainly come down. You know, the amount of people requesting forbearance, even though it's a big number, had, had come down as well. So look, I think you know, putting out a marker right now that, you know, that there's going to be some, in the ethereal, the abstract, some heavy-handed enforcement, I just don't know that's helpful to the process at this moment. The key thing right now is just to make sure that the government and the industry can work well together dealing with, and speaking for FHA, you know, a million or so households that are in forbearance right now. Yeah, I agree. I, and obviously the lenders and servicers are a little bit hand shy at the moment. They've, uh, 
you know, the old adage of from the government and I'm here to help you. I mean, these people are waking up in fear of their government when they double and triple down on, you know, enforcement and supervisory actions and things like that. One of the problems is the, the outsize punishment for the infraction or the error is really challenging. And it's, it's so ambiguous and seemingly arbitrary at times that it's hard for anyone to really quantify what the true risk is. And if the risk is truly amorphous or not well-defined, then it's just a terrible combination. You know, you're trying to do the right thing and get underserved borrowers into home ownership, benefit from the wealth creation opportunity that it presents. It's making me anxious that we're doing this at a time where the housing market is clearly frothy. It's a little bit like, you know, college uh, degrees. Is it good to be a homeowner? Absolutely. Is it good to have a college degree? Absolutely. Is it worth it at any price? Probably not. And then ultimately, if you're talking about this risky transaction in a normal market, and then it's a even riskier transaction in a frothy housing market, that level of trust between the industry and the government really needs to be strong for leaders in the industry to lean into those programs, take them to the extent that the government really intended them to go. You know, it, it's a trust exercise. I think there's going to be some challenges to you know, implementing these programs through these lenders who are the instruments of public policy well look at the you know as an example the false claim act 10 8 9 10 years ago and depositories felt like they had been singled out and for largely clerical or administrative errors what did they end up doing they left the fha program and that was to the detriment of many first-time home buyers who had a relationship with uh, with their depository who no longer offer the fha Product. So it certainly had an impact, I think, on minority home ownership for those families who entrusted their banking relationship to one of the, the big depositories, who now all of a sudden don't have access to, to the FHA, which is to me is just mind boggling. I mean, I think we work pretty hard to set the table to bring some of those depositories back. When, we, when I was running FHA, I know Dana White did as well. Um, that was, of course, somewhat interrupted by. COVID-19, understandably so, but I think I'm hopeful that the current administration will continue those efforts. Again, not choosing sides, as I always said, I think it's healthy for FHA, it's healthy for the home buying public to have the large depositories in the FHA program. Yeah, here, here. Well, hey, Brian, I've got one last question for you. This one's more specific to your most recent stand at HUD. You spent a little over three years there working to transform FHA and then later HUD into really a world-class business organization, a better business partner to lenders and servicers, modernizing the technology with projects like Catalyst. Um, as you mentioned, you grew the economic value of the MMI fund by a little over $40 billion, and you tripled the reserve ratio from 2 to 6%. I'm just curious if there was any unfinished business and you know, what advice would you have for the Biden team as it relates to being successful at HUD? Well, I did spend some time with their transition team before I left. Look, you know, this housing universe isn't that big. Regardless of political stripes, everybody in this field knows one another. And so I had a very productive discussion with them. Look, whether it was COVID-19 response, I, I appreciate your comments, Tim. The career staff, the political staff, worked very long hours uh, under difficult circumstances, push out a lot of policy, recognizing what all COVID-19 was doing to disrupt our industry. Luckily, we had set the table 
And I would say, look, in all candor, we had good house price appreciation to set the table to have the FHA reserves at the strongest they've probably ever been, more than $70 billion in reserves, another $45 billion in projected receipts, as you said, the capital ratio north of 6%. And the technology, what Congress listened to us two years ago, Democrats, Republicans worked together, gave us a down payment on making a generational change, FHA's antiquated technology. It's really an end-to-end -end solution, uh, eventually from underwriting, servicing claims, property disposition, you name it. The team worked heroically to push that out the door, especially the claims module. You know, as everybody who's done FHA before knows, that used to be a paper-based process. Could you imagine with forbearance and the number of claims having to handle those as paper claims? You're talking millions and millions of pages of paper that is now all done electronically. So that in and of itself, just by pure coincidence, ended up being something that was going to dramatically help the home buyers in the, in the industry and FHA process those claims uh, much faster. But there were some things that you're right. Uh, there were, were a lot of things we got out the door before we, we left. We brought about some much needed clarity on DACA that had been lacking there since DACA was first created in, uh, in 2012. We felt like what we put in there did away with that ambiguity based on the career attorneys at HUD gave us a good roadmap to remove that ambiguity. Uh, we're able to get out some you know, approved part of the action plan for more the funding for Puerto Rico and disaster recovery and uh, some updates to Davis-Bacon in terms of FHA multifamily, which we thought were long overdue. We worked closely with, with the Labor Department to bring some clarity around that and uh, in particularly around multi-wage rate decisions. But there were some things that were literally on the doorstep that I hope the new team continues. I would put near the top of the list, allowing private uh, flood insurance for FHA as is permissible with the GSEs. The final uh, of the service, the FHA servicing handbook, again, is that OIRA. Uh, that should be done quickly. Another rule in bar regarding requirement to have carbon monoxide detectors in HUD housing, public housing. Some of these are just good common sense. I hope the new team will see that as such and continue them. But I suspect there's others that they have different views on. Which, you know, the, the, that's what comes with winning and certainly comes with losing. Uh, it's their administration now, and they're well within their right to question some of those. I just, again, hope they go into it with eyes wide open and, and think about the more strategic, bigger picture versus some tactical, short-lived victory, if you will. I, like you, I mean, I've talked to a number of the, of the advisors, particularly on housing matters and general economic matters. You know, some are ideologues, but, you know, all in all, I'm I like the team. I think that they're level-headed. They tend to have a lot of good experience, maybe not commercial experience, but relevant experience. And their, their head's in the right place. It's just a matter of that balance. You know, again, I talk about patriotism versus capitalism in terms of the participation of these lenders and servicers in these government programs. And it takes two to tango. You can't have one without the other unless your government's going to open up its own retail branches for uh, underserved borrowers. So they need to work together. I'm confident that they will, but I just hope it happens sooner than later. Absolutely. And being an antagonistic relationship is not helpful for the process. No. 
Well, hey, Brian, so I'll summarize. I mean, maybe not about housing, but I've been taking stock of all this like so many other Americans over the last, at least the last year. Heck, the last 30 years has just been snowballing, it seems like. You know, my biggest concerns for us in the country really is that, you know, as the political divisions have kept increasing, you know, the ability for these two parties to come together on any significant legislation, public education, health and wellness, environment, tolerance, inclusion, you know, all of that stuff has stalled or gone in reverse. And then therefore a broken political system really has become you know, the greatest threat to our nation's future, COVID notwithstanding. Well said, I mean, or it ends up in the courts, state attorney generals, and they're, they're doing the work of Congress for Congress's inability to work together. So exactly. mm -hmm. I, I hope the two parties do work better together going forward. Amen. Well, hey, Brian, thanks, man. You know, on behalf of myself and the housing industry, I got to say thanks for your immense sacrifices in public service. You've got much to be proud of, my friend. Always a treat. I'm sure we'll be in touch again soon. Thank you again, Tim, and thank you for having me on today. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On The Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.